jumping in today. So if you weren't here, let me give you a brief summary of, of what we talked about last week um, in hopes that it'll make this morning a little bit more impactful. Um, in the first part of 2 Samuel chapter 7, um, God gives David, through the prophet Nathan, uh, one of the greatest promises that we have in the Old Testament. Uh, Walter Brueggemann, a great um, scholar, writes that this is probably, for evangelicals, the most significant section of Scripture in the whole Old Testament Bible, okay? So, so big deal. It's called the Davidic Covenant. And what we talked about last week was that the, the characteristics of the Davidic Covenant, this promise that God gives to David, was, was basically this. Four parts we talked about, that it would be characterized by grace over works, that it wasn't because David was awesome or, or great that God was choosing him. He simply chose him to, be, uh, to, to bless the nation of Israel through him, one. Um, two, that... that um, well, sorry, okay, two, that life would be more powerful than death, that although David was going to die one day, the promise that God made to David would not end with David's death. Third, that God would be victorious over sin, that, that David was going to screw up and so were his kids, and if you've read the rest of 2 Samuel, you can say uh, yes and amen to that, okay? A, a little bit of mess up going on there, we'll talk about some of it in the coming weeks, but God was faithful to his promise even though David was unfaithful. So the Davidic covenant was characterized by victory over sin. And finally, that, that eternity would be more powerful than time. That this was a promise that God gave, that, that David's throne would reign throughout all of eternity, that time was not going to be a, a binding factor in this promise. So God gave David this great promise. That's sort of catching us up to uh, uh, last week. God gave David this great promise. And I don't know about you, but Whenever I'm given a, a good promise, there's, there's some time in between when that promise is given and when that promise becomes reality. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to look at what David does immediately after receiving this great promise from God. Because I think it's sort of a, um, it's for us a model that I think we should follow as followers of Jesus. Now, I don't use the word should a ton when I preach. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think Christianity is based around shoulds and oughts, but this is something I think we should do in order to walk into the fullness of what Jesus invites us to, okay? Uh, as I was preparing uh, for our time together this morning, I was reminded of, of my childhood, and, and I was a huge baseball fan when I was a kid. I mean, I, I knew the statistics of every single player. Rockies weren't around back then, but um, I was following the Angels. You can forgive me later. But, um, and I knew the statistics of almost every single player in Major League Baseball. I loved collecting baseball cards. And, and I wasn't sort of your just nominal collector. I was, I was the guy that would save up all of his allowance money and go to Sam's Club and buy the big box of baseball cards. It was like 36. One pack wasn't good enough for me. 36 packs was, would about do it every year, okay? So I would open up those baseball cards, and, and by the end, I have so much gum in my mouth that my mouth, my jaw just hurts, you know? Anybody else collect baseball cards growing up or, or even now? I don't know if they even still make them. But anyway, um, so we would, uh, we would go, and we would buy the big box, and we would look through them, and, and my brother and I would sort them all out. And then we go to the store, and we get this magazine called Beckett, and Beckett would tell you how much your baseball cards were worth. Now, most of them were worth a, a nickel at best, and then there were some of them, like if you got a rookie card of somebody really good that was worth a little bit of money. And so we'd look in Beckett and go, oh my goodness, this uh, Barry Bond, I remember getting a Barry Bond's rookie card is worth uh, $10, wow. 
Well, one day my dad says to us, hey, I used to collect baseball cards. And we were like, why, why did this never come out before? Um, and he said, I have a big box of them in my closet. And I'm like, no way, no way. Because I knew in Beckett that the further back you went, the more money you were making as far as the cards went. And so my dad busts out, busts out this box, this shoebox full of baseball cards. And, and in it, we're, like, we're digging through. The, the, the most expensive card was worth about $400, and it was a Johnny Bench rookie card. And I can remember going to the card store and getting a, uh, a little plastic carrying case because it was just like floating around in there. I'm like, Dad, this is worth $400. Can you believe that? And he's like, no, no, I can't. No, I can't. And so we would like look up prices of all my dad's old baseball cards. And we would talk about how much they were worth. I can tell you today, I have no idea where those cards are. I have no idea where the cards are. We never actually went and took them into any sort of shop to say, will you, will you pay us for these? They're, they're worth X amount of dollars, according to, to Beckett, who evidently knew what he was talking about. I don't know. Um, and we never, it was all sort of this idea, this theory of actual money, but it was never money in our hands. Like it was a, it was a concept, it was a, it was a theory, in theory this is worth this much money, but we never actually went and sort of tested the theory. As I thought about the promise that God gives David, and the promises, more importantly, maybe the, that God's given you and I, I think a lot of us treat them like I treated those baseball cards. Like, we'll look at it, and we'll even, we'll go to Scripture and be like, oh my gosh, can you believe that God has redeemed us from sin? There's no condemnation, and we hold up the card, and we're like, isn't that awesome? And God's like, well, well it is awesome. Redeem it. Take it in. The things that we often, here's the deal, the things that we often will say we believe to be true will ironically have little to no bearing on our actual life. I wonder if that troubles you as a follower of Jesus. For me, it does. For me, it does. And so here's what David does. David gets this great promise of God. And then what he does right after is he teaches you and he teaches me how we become people who don't just receive covenant and receive promise and receive love from God, because we can all agree that that's fine and that's great, but, but, David, through what he does right after receiving covenant from God, becomes a person that actually walks in covenant. There's a difference. There's a difference because I think there's a lot of followers of Jesus walking around with their Johnny Bench rookie card going, it's worth $400. And God's going, mm-hmm, take it in and get the money. Take it in, like, like we have these great promises. You're, you're completely washed clean. You're completely forgiven. But you just don't feel like it. Like, you just don't feel like it. Or um, he says that you're adopted as a son or daughter of the king, but you just, that has never hit your heart. I'll tell you what, I was, um, I was, I was essentially born in a church. I mean, my mother gave birth to me on a pew. Okay, not really, but um, shortly thereafter, I was in church. After being born, my parents were really involved in church. We were always, we were perpetually the last family to leave. As a kid, I'm going, Come on, can we get home already? You know, and, and now I'm, I'm that guy, okay? Um, but it's all right. And so we, I, was, I, I grew up in church for 17 years. And the message of the gospel never actually sunk into my soul. One week on a backpacking trail did what 17 weeks in church never did. 
Because ironically, what God did on this backpacking trail in the, in the quietness of just being in his creation was he took the message that had landed in my head for 17 years and took it on the longest journey it's ever been on, about a foot all the way down to my heart. And he made it come alive. And he made it come alive. And I started to ask as I looked at this passage, how do we become the type of people who the message of the gospel is alive to and not just conceptual? I mean, would you agree that you want to walk in the truth that we believe? So this morning is going to be really about how do we do that? How do we become the type of people that don't just know promise but actually walk in it? That don't just understand and read about covenants, but actually have it impact the way that we live. That don't just talk about God's love, but actually live in the reality of it. 2 Samuel chapter 7, and we're going to pick up in verse 18 this morning. And it says this. And then King David, this is after Nathan delivers this revelation to him. And King David went in and he sat down before the Lord. We're just going to stop there. David gets his unbelievable great promise. And the promise is, David, you're not going to build. Actually, I'm going to build through you is what God says to David. Essentially, put down the hammer. You thought you were building a house. I'm going to build a dynasty. It's way better, David, than any blueprint you could have come up with on your own. So just settle down, Jojo, and you come and you hear from me because I'm going to do something better than you could ever think or imagine on your own. And David's immediate response is to go and to sit before the Lord. Not to, not to get more information, but to allow that truth. Because can, truth can, can be, truth can just be a concept for us. But what David wants to do is move the truth from concept to reality. And see, here's the big idea for you and I that we're going to wrap our minds and our hearts around this morning is this. It's a little bit verbose, but I wanted to say it all because I think it's important. As we sit at the feet of Jesus, and I would add only as we sit at the feet of Jesus, God's promises move from concepts that we believe to truths that shape our existence. To truths that shape our existence. See, you and I step into the promise of God in a practical, actual sense only after we sit at the feet of Jesus. Because it's possible, isn't it, to understand covenant and promise and love and not actually walk in it. To not believe that we're forgiven, to not believe that we're loved because of all this stuff that we can think of in our past and reasons that God wouldn't love us. But you see where the actual transformation takes place isn't just in the delivering of God's promise to David. It's in David going and taking the promise back to God and saying, God, I'm going to sit here long enough to hear that this is true. I'm going to sit here long enough to hear you speak it over me. I'm going to sit here long enough to know that it transcends what I really believe right now to be true. This is going to become what I build and shape my life around. I think it's poignant that David, the first thing he does after he receives covenant and promise from God is he goes and he sits in God's presence and allows God to transition it from his head to the longest 12-inch journey you'll ever take 
and he moves it to his heart. And David knows that he needs to do that. You see, prayer, prayer is the act by which the covenants and promises of God take root in our soul and actually become truth that we walk in, not just concepts that we believe. I love the way um, the, the great writer, he writes a lot on prayer, E.M. Bounds puts it, and he says this in one of his books. Faith and hope and patience and all the strong, beautiful, vital forces of piety are withered and dead in the prayerless life. The life of the individual believer, his personal salvation and personal Christian graces have their being, their bloom, and their fruitage in prayer. Isn't that awesome? That what God does in prayer is he takes the watering bucket and the, the seeds that have been planted and in prayer he waters them and they start to grow into actual true reality for our life. So could it be, could it be that the reason that so many followers of Jesus walk doubting, knowing the promises of God, but practically not walking in them and really probably doubting them is because we haven't spent enough time sitting at the feet of Jesus to allow him to take what we know to be true and move it to our hearts. I think it is. I think it's a, I think it's a scary reality, especially in the West where we're so busy building I mean, isn't that ironic that what David does is he trades building for God to sitting with God? That's a transition that's hard for me to make, I'm going to be honest. It's a transition that's, that's hard for me to make. I, I can't tell you guys, as I've prayed through this message this week, how bad I want this to be true for us. Not just at, on an on a individual level, but also on a corporate level. So I don't know if you know, there's a group that meets every Wednesday night back in the fireside room, and they pray over South, and they pray over people here, and you're invited to come to that. If you feel like, hey, these are concepts I believe, but not reality that I walk in, come Wednesday night. Come Wednesday night and allow yourself to be surrounded by believers who are going to God and saying, God, we want you to bring to fruition the covenants and promises that you've given. We don't just want to know them, we want to walk in them. Wednesday night. What time, Janet? Seven. Janet might want to talk. 6.30, okay. 6.30. See, if we don't, here, here's, here's the analogy that I've thought of this week. If we don't spend time soaking in the goodness of God through prayer, here's what, here's what Sunday morning becomes. I love going to Duffy Rolls. Okay, right down Broadway. Oh, amazing cinnamon rolls. I mean, you walk in there and it's like the glory, the Shekinah glory of the Lord might dwell in the back bakery of Duffy Roll. I don't know. That might be why there's a huge light beam over it. I'm not sure. But anyway, so, so uh, I, I think Sunday morning becomes for us, if we don't spend time soaking in prayer, going to Duffy Rolls every Sunday morning and just sitting there and going, oh, isn't it good? Well, all right, we'll see you later. And just walking out. And just walking out. Like conceptually, we believe that it probably tastes good, but we never actually make that transition to, I should, I should probably get a Duffy roll. And you should. They're amazing. <laughs> and so what God does in prayer is he says, welcome to my banquet. Welcome to my goodness. Taste and see that I'm good. Don't just, don't just hear about and talk about my goodness. 
Taste it. See it. Walk in it. It's real. So, so Jesus does this same thing with um, some of his disciples. In Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42, it reads like this. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where there was a woman named Martha who opened her home to him. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet. That should be, sound familiar, ring a few bells for us. Sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted. If you ever own Bible, circle that word, distracted, by making all the preparations that had to be made. And she came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister's left me to do all the work by herself? Tell her to help me. Now, I'm surprised at this point that Jesus doesn't say, listen, here, Martha, I think I can handle it. I think I'm good. I think I'm okay. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Isn't that an interesting statement by Jesus? There's just one thing needed. Mary has chosen what's better and it will not be taken away from her. One thing needed? Well, what's, a, what's the one thing that's needed? If Mary's doing the only thing that's needed, see, here's the deal. Martha's building. Martha's serving. Martha is doing what she should, quote unquote, be doing. She's working for the church, essentially. And Jesus says, I'm not so worried about what you can do for me. I'm more interested in rather, rather if you'll just be with me. If you'll just be with me. See, a lot of us walk. We walk in concepts rather than reality. And the truth of the matter is, is that there's a lot of things in Scripture that are true of us, but they're just not true for us because we haven't spent the time sitting at Jesus' feet. Notice, he says, it's the necessary, the one, the only thing that's needed. Come, sit with me. Hear from me. So here's what I hear Jesus saying. We can design a lot of great, really cool, probably true programs for us in church. But if they aren't circled around and based around people sitting at the feet of Jesus, transformation will never take place. Because that's where it happens. He's like, Martha, all the other stuff is going to take care of itself. Will you just come and will you be with me? And so my question I want to press on you this morning, and I'm asking God to, to just to touch you, to work in you, is, is this a reality for you? Do you know covenant and promise and love in concept? Or do you know it in truth? Do you walk in it in reality? And here's where David goes, because I think what he hears from God is the same thing that God wants you and I to hear from him. I want to point out four things that God speaks over David, or that David prays back to God as he's in the presence of God, and, and, and God's spirit is working on him uh, to know the truth, and not just know it, but to walk in it. Here we go. Verses 18 through 21 read like this. Who am I? Oh, sovereign Lord. Quick time out. I know I don't have time for it, but I need to have time for it. Here's how you know you've engaged in the presence of God. This is the first statement you make. Whoa, who am I? I have no business being here without you striking me dead. That's how you know you've been in his presence. 
Who am I, O sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you've brought me this far? I mean, you wonder if David's thinking through, um, I had to fight off bears and I could have gone out that way. I had to dodge spears and I could have easily gone out that way. I was wandering in the desert for like a decade and I could have died then. I was hiding in caves. I was, and so David, in the presence of God, through prayer, starts to realize, oh, God, you've, you've actually carried me. Like, I didn't just end up here by accident, God. You've been at work. Sometimes behind the scenes and in times where I didn't see you and I didn't necessarily feel you, but, God, you were at work. Any amens to that? I mean, yeah, this is what happens in prayer. We start to see God's gracious hand that's guided us through the twists and turns of life that we thought were just random. And in prayer, God says, no, I had a plan for that. And as if it were not enough in your sight, O sovereign Lord, you've also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. So David goes, I see, your, I see the past and the way your hand shaped and moved and guided. And God, I'm confident in the future that you're going to continue what you've started You've also spoken about the future of your house, of your servant. Is this your, un- your usual way of dealing with men, O sovereign Lord? Hey, am I special or is this normally what you do? Are you this good is essentially what David says. Now, here, here's, here's a truth that I think um, is big for us. If we don't come out of prayer understanding that God is good, even if he convicts of sin, Because he also then reminds us of righteousness in the cross that by which we are justified and made righteous in the sight of God. If we don't come out of prayer going, God, I can't believe you're good. I can't believe you're this good to me. And we haven't met with the God of the universe. Because even when he convicts, he pushes us towards a righteousness that he provided on the cross. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O sovereign Lord, for the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and have made it known to your servant. You see, as you and I, as it moves, as the truth of God moves from concept to reality, it takes us uh, to a place where we can rest in God's guiding presence. Through the twists and turns of life, we start to see that God is good. I don't know if you've spent time lately just thinking back on even how you got to this place you're in right now and the way that God's hand moved and the way that God's hand guided and and the way that he shaped you. But it says that his word says he's constantly at work. Listen to Psalm 121. It says, he will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. So there wasn't one moment where you went to bed where he did also. There wasn't one moment where he took his hands off of you or his eyes off of you and all the dark years that you've gone through. He says, I saw it all. I was at work in it all. I never took my eye or my hand off of you. I was at work behind the scenes even when you didn't see me and you didn't know what was happening. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. I love that. I love that. Paul picks up the same thing in Romans where he says this, and we know that in all things, God works. That's good news. Even if we just stopped there, that would be praiseworthy enough. In all things, he works. In the good, in the bad, in the ugly, in the regrets, in the celebrations, he's at work. For the good of those who love him, 
who've been called according to his purpose. See, you can hear me preach that. But unless you take that to the throne, and unless you sit in it this week, and just say, God, I can't, I can't believe that this is true. And we live in a microwave culture, but oftentimes the covenants take root in our soul through a crock pot, not a microwave. God's inviting us. Will you come and will you see the way that I have been at work even when you didn't see it? David continues, verse 22. How great you are, O sovereign Lord. There is no one like you. There is no God but you as we've heard with our own ears. That's a verse that may, might be worth memorizing. You're amazing, God. There's no one like you. There's no one other than you. You are it, O Lord. And here's what David does through prayer, is he soaks in God's astounding greatness. He soaks in his astounding greatness. You're sovereign. You're good. You've done a great thing. There's no one but you, as we've heard with our own ears, oh Lord. There's things that happen in our life as we go to God in prayer. And, and I've, I've sort of used Psalm 46 as a, as a model to understand God's greatness and, and what happens in us as we understand his goodness to us. If you have a Bible, would you just flip over there? Psalm 46 this is a psalm that, that talks about the goodness and greatness of God and what it does in our hearts as we believe that. So it's a, song that talks, a psalm that talks about a transition from concept to reality, okay? And here's the way that the psalmist writes this. And just so you know, there's going to be four things I'll invite you to write down. They all start with P, which is um, awesome, I read a preaching book over the weekend that said you should use alliteration, and so I just, no, I didn't. I'm just kidding. Um, it says this, God is our refuge and our strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. And the earth, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though the waters war and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, Selah, he says, we will not fear. We will not fear. And see, as you soak in the greatness of God, you get a different perspective. That's the first one. Perspective on the world around you. That God starts to show you, listen, what you're going through is difficult and what you're going through is hard and I get that, but I'm better and I'm bigger and I'm stronger and come to me and find rest. It's a different perspective. It's not being shaken and torn about, but it's coming to him and believing that he's a refuge for us. You see, you can know that in your head. But you'll know whether it's true for you when difficult times come. Verses four through seven read like this. There's a river whose streams may glad the city of God. We, we don't have time, but that is an awesome truth. The holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice and the earth melts. Verse 7. And the Lord Almighty is with us. And the God of Jacob is our fortress. Did you know that as you sit in God's 
greatness and goodness to you, you start to understand his presence in a new way. So as David sits with God, he starts to go, all right, God, you are moving, and God, you're amazing, and God, you're here. You're here. I think the reason that we often doubt the presence of God is because we haven't spent time in his presence to know what it feels like when he's here. And he's here. Always. Always. He continues. Come and see the works. Come and see what God can do. Come and see what he's done. The desolations he's brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. You start to understand his power in a new way. He's able, is what the psalmist writes. He's working. He's moving. He's shaping. Verse 10, finally, says, be still. That may be one of the hardest commands of Scripture. Be still. Rest. And know that I am God. Here's what he says. David, I'm the one keeping the earth moving, not you. David, I created this all, not you. David, I was shaping and molding your life before you ever knew I existed. It wasn't you, it was me who was at work. And wherever you're at right now, I think God would invite you, be still and know I'm God. Implication, you're not. You're not. If he's God, you're not. And hey, just just for free this morning, that's what Sabbath is originally all about. Have you ever read through Genesis 1 and 2 and wondered why the day after God woke Adam and Eve up to creation, he said, now rest? And what are they tired from? I mean, it's not like they've been doing anything. They just were awoken to a beautiful, wonderful life where they're naked in a garden. They haven't been doing anything. And God says, hey, why don't you take a break? And why don't you rest? And why don't you take note because you're going to forget. Why don't you take note that I made this all? And that I'm the one who makes this earth spin. And that I'm the one that makes this grass grow. And that I'm the one who's provided food for you and shelter for you and everything you need. Pause, Adam and Eve. Stop. Be still. No, I'm God and you're not. You know, your soul really, truly finds rest when you actually get there. When you realize that when you stop working, as David does, that God actually is still working. Isn't that amazing? He says, and I will be exalted among the nations, and I will be exalted in the earth. And you see, when we understand and see the greatness of God, it inspires praise and worship within us. So here's a question that I would ask is if we understand the goodness and greatness of God, then God does something to our souls and our hearts when we talk about him, when we sing about him, when we sing songs that are chock full of truth, like your love never fails, it never runs out on me. It should be hard for us to sing that with our hands in our pockets. Now, I'm not saying you need to dance around, although you're invited to if you want to. But I think it should do something in us. It should make us go, oh man, God, thank you. Yes, that's true. I believe it. I'm walking in it. Thank you. Thank you. 
And when we spend time in the presence of God, it starts to just evoke praise in our soul. So David soaks in it. I use that word intentionally. I want to invite you this week to, to soak in the goodness of God. And I'm going to fly through these last few. 23, verse 23, 2 Samuel chapter 7. And who is like your people, Israel? The one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people, whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people Israel as your very own forever, and you, O oh Lord, have become their God. David receives promise. David goes to the feet of God. And what God, and through his spirit, does in David as he prays, as he reminds him, I saved you. I called you out of Egypt. Do you know one of the things that the Holy Spirit loves to remind you of as you go to him in prayer and as you sit at the feet of Jesus is that you are the redeemed. That you're a son or daughter of the king. And see, as concepts that we understand move to reality that we walk in, one of the things that we do is we acknowledge his gracious rescue based on nothing in and of ourselves, but in whole and total movement of God that he has reached down and he's rescued you. Did you know that the psalmist writes, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit. Here's what he doesn't say. He dropped a louder a ladder for me to climb up. That's not the gospel. The gospel isn't that God drops a ladder for you and says, now get to work. The gospel is God rescues, that he redeems, that he saves, and he sets our feet on a rock and gave us a firm place to stand. That's the gospel. And as we sit in God's presence, I think one of the things the Holy Spirit loves to do most is remind you and me that we are children of the Most High King. Because it shines a light on Jesus and it redefines the way that you live. Perfect love that drives out fear. Oh man, I think it could change us. I think it could change us. Finally, here's what David says, verse 25. Sorry, um, 20. Yeah, I'm gonna start in 25. And now, Lord, keep forever the promise you've made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you've promised so that your name will be great forever. Isn't that great? David takes God's promise back to God and says, here's what I heard you say, just wanna confirm it. You're saying you're going to build an eternal dynasty out of me. Yes. You're saying that sin will not derail your plan. Yes. You're saying that you're going to work this through eternity, not just time. Yes. And David takes God's promises back to him and says, God, I just want to make sure I heard you right because this is awesome. So that your name will be made great. Then men will say, the Lord Almighty is God over Israel and the house of your servant David will be established before you. Verse 27. O Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to offer you this prayer. Isn't that interesting? David says, I, I found the courage to come to you. 
and to stand before you and to say back to you, this is what you said. Oh, sovereign Lord, you are God. Your words are trustworthy. And you have promised these good things to your servant. Did you know only through prayer do you actually come to be convinced his words are trustworthy? You can hear me preach all you want. You can hear me preach every single Sunday, but that transition never happens unless we spend time with the Lord. For him to go, yes, yes, it's true. I do love you. I am for you. I haven't let you go. I have been working. I have been shaping. I have been moving. I have brought you to this place. Yes, it's true. My promises for you are true. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant David that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, O sovereign Lord, have spoken and with your blessing, the house of Israel, your servant, will be blessed forever. Here's what David says. All right, God, I heard what you said. And I'm bringing it back to you to acknowledge that I've heard it, to affirm that I believe that it's true, and to align my life with this new reality. And he says to God, I hope you're serious because I am. I'm going to build my life. I'm going to build my life on your word. I'm going to build my life on your word. And you see, you never build on his word. You never conform your life to his word when it's concept, when it's an idea, and even even something that we believe. See, we build our life on his word when it's a truth that sinks into our soul and starts to transform the way that we walk. Here's my prayer for us, South. My prayer is that you would spend enough time in the presence and greatness and goodness of God that you would know these things to be true, not just know them to be true in your head, but that they would sink deeply into your souls. Hey, one of the ways that we build our life on his truth is by following his commands. And one of the things that he's commanded us and invited us to is baptism, is to declare through a public declaration that we are his followers. And we have the chance to celebrate that this morning. And so I'm going to close us um, in prayer, our time in the word in prayer. And then I'm going to invite, um, we have at least one person in this service that's getting baptized this morning. Um, we have a few next service as well. So if you want to stick around, I'd invite you to do that. Go grab a cup of coffee, come back and celebrate with us. But if you have not taken the step yet to be baptized, and you are a follower of Jesus, I would say there's no time better than the present. We have... Um, robes that you can change into over here and so you don't get your clothes all wet. We have towels for you. Um, and I would invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus and haven't been baptized, um, maybe you just come sit up here right next to Eva. Will you just wave your hand? Um, and she will get you set up. You can come up during this last song um, that we're going to sing together. And then we will celebrate baptism as a body together. Will you pray with me?